0: Hello, and welcome to our epidemiology edition of Data Monitor Healthcare's podcast. In this podcast, we will be discussing the current trends in epidemiology throughout the world and how epidemiology data is being used to support drug discovery and improve health outcomes. First off, I'd like to introduce Data Monitor's epidemiology team Ridwan Abraham. Hi. Hey. Lucia Rodriguez Garcia. Hi. Maya Trivedi. Hi. And Asma Ali. Hi. And uh, Ridwan, can you just kick us off and explain um, what epidemiology is?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so epidemiology is the study of how often diseases occur in different, in different groups of people and why. Epidemiologists also look into what might increase the risk of certain population of getting the disease. Um, there are two common terminologies that we use within epidemiology. So there is incidence and prevalence. Incidence tells us how many um, cases occur in a year, while prevalence tells us how many people have the disease in total. So one of the earliest incidents of modern epidemiology can be found during 1854 cholera outbreak in London. So, a lot of the doctors thought that the disease was airborne, um, but Dr John Snow, who's considered to be the father of epidemiology, was able to link um, every case of cholera to a water pump in London Soho. So, the removal of the water pump removed the risk of getting cholera, and this really laid the foundation of um, today's epidemiology um, practices.
0: And can you just explain a bit about the different studies used within epidemiology?
1: Um, So epidemiologists use different research methods depending on what they want to find out. So there are two categories. Um, We've got analytical studies and descriptive studies. So analytical studies uh, measures the association between a particular exposure and a disease. In data monitor epi, we tend to use sources that use cross-sectional um, research designs. This estimates the prevalence of health conditions or diseases or prevalence of behaviour, risk factors, or potential for a disease. Other examples of um, analytical studies include case control studies and court studies. Um, descriptive studies is a little bit different. So, examples of descriptive studies are case studies um, and they focus on specific individuals or groups. They don't provide a broad view of disease burden, but they can give us clues or insights into new or rare conditions.
0: And how um,
1: data monitor are these sources used? Um, the main aim of um, data monitor EpiData is to understand what the prevalence or incidence of various diseases are for USA, um, EU5 and Japan. So for top line data, so when we're looking at the um, incidence or prevalence data, we use rates from epidemiology papers and apply them to um, UN demographic Um, population to forecast disease burden. We ensure that we use local sources as well as different countries have different risk factors of developing certain diseases. Um, The incidence and the prevalence data that we have modelled is further segmented by severity and biomarkers and comorbidities as well.
0: Lucia, what drives the trends observed in epidemiology forecasts?
2: Uh, This really depends on the indication and also data availability. In general, for oncology indications, detailed historical data is available, which allows us to identify patterns in the epidemiology of a particular disease. For example, where historical data shows that the incidence rates of a cancer are increasing between, for example, 2000 to 2023, we can then make the assumption that incidence is likely to continue to increase in the forecast period this of course depends on uh, risk factors new treatments and other developments within an indication so we always have to be really cautious not to turn too far into the future in epidemiology forecasts however one of the main drivers for trends in both oncology and non-oncology indications on top of the actual changes in prevalence and incidence rates over time are the demographic changes in the populations being studied. As life expectancy increases, the number of people in older age groups continues to grow, which means that there will also be an increase in the prevalence or incidence of certain diseases in those older age groups. This is especially evident for indications that are mostly prevalent in the older age groups.
0: Um, Would you be able to provide us an example of an indication where the ageing population trend is particularly clear?
2: yeah sure this trend is uh, will be seen across many different indications as diseases are generally more prevalent in older age groups than younger ones however one of the clear examples of this is alzheimer's disease as it has a very low prevalence in age groups under 65 and a high prevalence in age groups over 65. so in the us for example this is it is estimated that as of this year 6.7 million people Age 65 and older were living with Alzheimer's, and this number is expected to double by 2050. These estimates show that as the world population ages over time, Alzheimer's disease will become more prevalent and more cases will be observed in the population, not necessarily just due to the changes in the prevalence rates themselves, but also to the growth of the population aged 65 and over.
0: Are there any countries or regions where this trend has a clear impact on disease epidemiology?
2: Yes, so I would say that Japan is a clear example of this, as it is the fastest aging country in the world. The Japanese population aged 65 and over is expected to increase from 47% in 2015 to 80% by 2060. This means that even if the prevalence rates of Alzheimer's disease stay the same over time, the growth of the population of the older age groups will mean that the number of Alzheimer's disease cases will increase accordingly. Also, many European countries are undergoing demographic changes to the populations. For example, in Italy and Spain, on top of the aging population observed across the world, fertility rates in these countries are also decreasing. This means that fewer babies are being born, around 1.19 births per woman in Spain and 1.25 in Italy. And the opposite is actually true for countries such as Nigeria, where the fertility rate is among the highest in the world, estimated at 5.3 births per woman. All the demographic changes that I've mentioned will likely affect epidemiology trends in the future. And for this reason, the UN population projection data are used in forecasting disease epidemiology. As they reflect all the demographic shifts mentioned as such as ageing population and changing fertility rates. Asthma, what
0: are other trends that you've noticed?
2: Another trend in epidemiology, which
3: we've been seeing recently, is a rising concern on the African continent, and that's the increase in mortality from non-communicable diseases. So these are long-term conditions that are not really caused by infections and often require long-term treatment. And these include conditions such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and mental health conditions. The human loss from NCDs in Africa is significant, and the number continues to grow annually. Estimates suggest that NCDs cause over 2.1 million deaths across Africa in 2019. The World Health Organization estimates that this will increase to about 3.8 million premature deaths by 2030. It's really clear that it's really clear that there's an increase in the burden of NCDs across the African continent. In sub-Saharan Africa alone, it's estimated that the disease burden of NCDs has increased by 67% from 1990 to about 2017. In fact, the burden of NCDs across the 55 African Union state members is higher than the global average. It's estimated that African economies lose billions of dollars each year due to NCDs and mental health conditions, which not only results in direct healthcare costs, but also impedes productivity. Whilst this has been an ongoing concern over the past decade, on top of increasing human and economic costs of NCDs, COVID-19 has exacerbated the situation. NCDs increase the risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19, Additionally, as a result of the pandemic, NCD health services were greatly interrupted across the continent. This harmful cascade of events has resulted in a worsening public health crisis and has highlighted the drastic need for a coordinated approach in the
0: prevention and control of non-communicable diseases. What do you think um, is causing the increase in NCDs across the African continent? That's a
3: really good question.
0: Firstly, as Africa continues to develop, the globalisation of the continent has
3: dramatically changed the political, social and economical landscape of Africa. Globalisation is an important determinant of non-communicable disease epidemics, as it has a direct effect on populations, including national economies, healthcare systems and changes in lifestyle. Increasing incidence of all unhealthy diets, reduced physical activity, obesity, and and the ongoing issue of air pollution have all contributed to the increased burden in NCDs in Africa. Furthermore, as the population in Africa increases and with people living longer, populations have a greater risk of developing non-communicable diseases. Africa also has the additional burden of communicable, maternal, neonatal, and nutritional diseases, which disproportionately affect Africa compared to global rates. These issues consume much more of the already limited resources of healthcare care system. What's concerning is that WHO estimates that NCDs are set to overtake these diseases as the leading cause of mortality in sub-Saharan Africa by 2030. Therefore, now more than ever, strategic efforts are needed to curb the burden of non-communicable diseases in the region.
0: Do you know what's being done to tackle this issue um, and what more is needed?
3: While there are great efforts being made to reduce the burden of non-communicable diseases, epidemiological studies and estimates of NCDs are being conducted across the continent to determine their drivers. Understanding how NCDs are growing in the continent helps to inform prevention and control strategies. African states and organisations are also collaborating to determine both short and long-term interventions. For example, the African Union has a non-communicable disease injuries prevention and control programme which is part of Africa's Agenda 2063 to transform Africa into a global powerhouse. Continent-wide interventions can also share innovation and capital in a joint response to the public health needs of the continent. Africa is aiming to build strong institutions, source vaccines and medicines locally, increase the public health workforce and build trusted long-lasting partnerships to better improve healthcare systems to tackle the burden of NCDs. While steps are going in the right direction, more is needed to ensure the success of ongoing programs. Surveillance system and health promotion and protection for NCDs need to be further highlighted to populations as they currently are with communicable diseases. Education on the risks involved with NCDs can help populations take their health into their own hands, which aids public health institutions and policymakers in the effort to fight the rising burden of NCDs.
0: Oh, yeah. you wanted to talk a bit about how novel research methods are being used to understand the epidemiology of certain diseases um, and then how genetic epidemiology can support drug development. What does epidemiology have to do with genetics and how is that research conducted? Yes,
4: yeah, so genetic epidemiology is the study of how genetic factors contribute to health and disease in a population. An example of this type of research is genome wide association studies, which is abbreviated to GWAS, and these are an approach that's used to identify genomic variants that are statistically associated with a trait or a risk for a disease. Essentially, the method involves analyzing the genomes of lots of people. And this can be up to tens of thousands in a single study, and looking for genomic variants that occur more frequently in those with a specific trait or disease compared to those without it. The first GWAS was published in 2005 and since then they've been used to identify genes associated with lots of diseases including obesity, cancers and autoimmune conditions. GWAS results have at times provided hints into disease biology, So, to give an example, a GWAS implicated a specific biochemical pathway in the development of Crohn's disease, and then this result supported clinical trials for drugs that target this pathway.
0: And how do you think can this kind of research support drug discovery and drug development? Researching
4: the impact of human genetic variation on phenotypes can give us an important insight into physiology of the human body. So using methods such as GWAS, this can lead to the discovery of drug targets. An analysis has suggested that drug mechanisms with direct genetic support have a higher success rate in clinical development. And another way that this can support drug discovery is that understanding disease susceptibility genes has also been useful for drug repurposing. And this is where new indications are identified for existing approved drugs or drugs that are in clinical trials. This has been the case in GWAS, where genetic loci that are targets for already approved cancer drugs have been identified as being potential therapeutic targets for treating rheumatoid arthritis. That's
0: really interesting, Matt. Aside from the pharmaceutical industry, how can epidemiology be used to improve health outcomes? So policy is a huge area
4: that epidemiologists focus their research on. Epidemiology can be used to identify what kinds of policy will make the biggest impact on improving public health, and it can also be used to evaluate the health impacts of policies that have already been enacted.
0: And can you give any examples that we might be familiar with?
4: Yeah, so a good example of this is the creation and expansion of the ultra low emission zone in London that you might have heard about. So there's been a huge number of studies linking air pollution with poorer health outcomes across the world. Longitudinal studies are particularly useful here, and these monitor the environmental exposures and health of a population over a long period of time, and then analyse the data to identify associations. Longitudinal studies have shown that higher levels of air pollution can affect a person's health across their lifetime. And this is seen in short-term health effects, such as um, exacerbating asthmatic symptoms and coughing, as well as much longer term effects, including cardiovascular disease, stroke and lung cancer. So epidemiologists can quantify the impact of air pollution on mortality using a measure called attributable, attributable mortality, which is the mortality in a population or the death in a population that can be attributed to a particular exposure. Research that's been carried out by the UK government has used this measure to show that pollution is responsible for thousands of deaths in the UK by increasing the risk of those indications that I mentioned. Another way of looking at this is studies conducted in cities with low emission zones in place and how they've shown improvements in population health compared to before. A study comparing mortality rates in Tokyo before and after the introduction of a low emission zone, found an 11% reduction in total cardiovascular disease mortality attributable to the low emission zone. These kinds of studies provide evidence that implementing policy focused on lowering car emissions can directly reduce the disease burden in the population. So this is the type of evidence that was used to support the implementation of the ultra low emission zone in London. And having high quality epidemiological research that links specific environmental factors with poorer health outcomes makes it much easier for policies to be enacted in the space.
0: That's a really hot topic um, right now, Maya. And asthma, uh, in your opinion, what's a hot topic in epidemiology also?
3: Cancer is currently a big topic in epidemiology, especially cancer in young people. It's not often a topic that comes to mind when discussing cancer. And this is expected, as in the UK, about 90% of all cancer affects people over the age of 50 and about 50% over 75. However, over the past two decades, we've seen a concerning rise in the number of cancer cases in, un- in the under 50s population. In the UK, between the early 1990s and 2018, cancer incidence rates in 25 to 49 year olds has increased by 22%. That's a bigger percentage than in any other age group, more than twice the 9% increase in the over 75s. This trend is reciprocated around the world, and global cancer cases in people under 50 have risen by 79% between 1990 and 2019.
0: And is this trend the same across all age groups under 50s? Well, we do know that cancer risk does increase with age, and
3: the age at which cancer most develops depends on the actual cancer. However, more recent research has found something quite interesting. Evidence of something called the birth cohort effect is currently the topic of discussion. Essentially, a study that's recently been published analyzed over 14 different cancers and their cases over a few decades and found that each successive group of people born at a certain time, for example, a decade later, have a higher risk of developing cancer later in life, most likely due to the risk factors that they were exposed to in their earlier lives as children. The theory is that early life exposures to these risk factors are causing cell mutations, which usually occur in over 50s in younger people. What this means is that people born in 1980s, for example, have a higher risk of developing cancer at 50 than those that were born in 1970. And this trend is expected to continue with every generation.
0: That's really interesting. Um, and what reasons do you think are contributing uh, to the growing risk?
3: Well, as we already know, an individual's diet, lifestyle, weight and environmental exposures and even the constitution of the microbiome has an effect on the risk of developing cancer. Additionally, we can assume that some of this increase is also due to early detection through cancer screening programmes. While it's difficult to determine the exact proportion, it's not a huge factor, as this was a trend that was seen across all 14 cancer studies, most of which are not often screened for. Other evidence shows alcohol consumption, sleep deprivation, smoking, obesity and eating overly processed foods, all which are factors which contribute to the growing risk. Many of these factors have all significantly increased since about the 1950s when this trend was started to be observed. Diet is one of the leading theories. In the study, the researchers found that in the 14 cancers they studied, eight were related to the digestive system. Diet directly affects the micro composition, and these changes can influence cancer risk. More evidence is that bowel and colorectal cancer have been consistently on the rise since the 1950s. This is when the model lifestyle that we know today began to take shape. Diet and life size began to change. Additionally, evidence suggests that this isn't just a Western issue. For example, take Japan and South Korea, for example. Both are modern high-income countries. However, Japan hasn't seen the rise in early onset. Of digestive related cancers, particularly in men, whilst in South Korea they've also been seeing a sharp rise in early onset cancers. This is thought to be attributed to diet. South Korean lifestyles are similar to those of the Western societies, but in Japan it's different. It's one of the only high-income countries where the diet isn't similar to the West. In Japan legumes, fish, vegetables are mainly consumed and children often walk or ride ride a bike to school instead of taking buses or cars. Although more research is needed, we can be sure that changes in the way we live is having a huge impact in the cancer risk for younger people. Um, What are the next steps? Well, we already know what works. Changing the way we eat is very important. Reducing red meat and processed foods and increasing the number of fish, fibre and legumes we consume is very important. Physical activity is also important. Even three hours a week has shown to have significant results in reducing the risk of some cancers by up to 40%. More clinical research is definitely needed and is currently being conducted. Research which investigates how we can alter the microbiome to reduce cancer risk, as well as other research which aims to understand how early life exposures are causing cells to mutate and increase cancer risk. Also, the government is researching if reducing the age for screening on some cancers, such as breast cancer, is effective, Although this is not being done across all screening programmes. However, as research shows, early childhood is a determinant of cancer risk. Policymakers and healthcare professionals must ensure more is done to tackle the lifestyle issues in young people. Obesity is a huge problem in the UK. By the age of 11, one in three children are thought to be obese in the UK. The government has initiatives in place to help reduce the prevalence. This includes, for example, the sugar tax on soft drinks to incentivize companies to reduce the level of sugar in their beverages. Also, there is currently a plan for the government to ban junk food ads until after 9pm, although this hasn't been implemented yet. Every family deserves an obtainable healthy lifestyle, but the healthy lifestyle and diet recommended by healthcare systems requires time, effort and money that many families, especially those with young children, don't have. Policymakers and experts must work together to bridge the gap and ensure all young people have access to a healthy and happy childhood.
0: Lastly, Ridwan, how is epidemiology used within the pharmaceutical and life science industry?
1: Yeah, so there are various ways that epidemiology is used within the pharmaceutical and life science industry. Um, ep- epidemiology is so it's so important when it comes to drug development and safety. By understanding the prevalence or the incidence of diseases, um, pharmaceutical companies can identify unmet medical needs and prioritise drug development accordingly. Once a drug is on the market, epidemiologists continue to monitor um, the the safety of drugs in real-world settings, ensuring that any adverse side effects are quickly identified and addressed. Another way that epidemiology is also used is within um, is when. Trying to do market assessment. Uh, market assessment is another area where epidemiology is used. Epidemiology data helps pharma companies gauge the potential market size for a drug. By understanding the number of individuals affected by a disease, um, pharmaceutical companies can better forecast sales, optimize pricing strategies, and plan for production capacities. Another way epidemiology is used is within clinical trials. So, epidemiology studies aid in the design of clinical trials by understanding the disease's um, natural history, its risk factors, and its cause. Trials can be designed more efficiently, um, recruiting the right patient population and deciding on the most relevant endpoints to measure. Epidemiology, is also, epidemiology also helps to provide the necessary data to conduct health economics and outcome research, um, so to conclude this, I probably would say that epidemiology is not just about counting cases or understanding the disease patterns in the context of pharmaceutical and life science industry. It's about making informed decisions that impact research direction, patient care and public health at large.
0: Thanks, everyone, And that concludes That's our epidemiology that. episode of Data Monitor's podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye.